Whoa, Nelly. It's just Mark on his own in an interview special. Hey guys, we've got someone joining us on the show today. We're about to meet them in just a minute. It's a beautiful day to have a guest. Time to talk to one of the best. Is it Larry? Could it be Larry? We've had Tom Scioli, Shannon Gallant, Andy Warhol was a gent, Mike Mailar, Word Burglar. We've always wanted to have a guest just like you, like the Queen will ask. And what do you do? So let's make the most of this communique. Sorry to say it is for no pay. I won't lie, we will try. Won't you do me a favour? Don't you tease with some expertise. Let's interview a creator. So it's Mark here. You thought that that might be the end of it for the interview specials, but don't dream it's over. It's a crowded house here today because with me today is Tim Finn, the guy who everywhere he goes, he always brings his Joes with him. Tim Finn is currently writing the definitive history of the Real American Hero incarnation of G.I. Joe and documenting his progress at arealamericanbook.com. Tim teaches animation history and drawing at Leslie Art and Design and also owns Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I'm delighted to welcome him onto the show today. Hello, Tim. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. And uh, hello to the Talking Joe's listeners. It's great, uh, great to have you on because I've been, I've been long reading your your blog and sort of seeing the goings on as your book is progressing and you sort of sharing some of uh, the tidbits from it. So, so I've been fascinated uh, by by the progress and also, um, you know, very intrigued by the discoveries that that you've been sharing because they're constantly a, a well written and, and you know a deep dive into whatever thing it is that you're you're sharing you know most recently you spotlighted one of your mark bright pages i I believe it was and just you know delving into the detail of a single page it's uh, fascinating to see thanks owning a comic book store suggests my i guess i'm biased more towards gi joe comics uh and then secondarily uh the animation and i love the toys i absolutely love the toys but probably one can't love or know more about all three things. So when when I'm writing in for the book, when I'm writing on my blog, if if readers notice a subtle level of excitement when I'm writing about comics or animation that's not there with the toys, I guess it's because I'm more comfortable writing about comics and hmm. animation because I, I have been an animator for television. I have not been a toy designer, although I know toy designers. Um, but but am I right, I'm right in thinking that you, you sort of started kind of at least the concept of, of writing a book all the way back in 2001. Is that right? Correct. I read John Mickling's G.I. Joe, The Complete Story of America's Favorite Man of Action, which is this gorgeous uh, well-written and informational hardcover coffee table book, which came out in 98. And it's about the 60s and 70s, Joe. And it's it's not a toy guide. It's not an encyclopedia. It tells the story of people at Hasbro coming up with ideas and marketing. And uh, the photography's great and the design's great. Around the same time I was in college, um, there was a, we had a, a, a student newspaper. I went to Rhode Island School of Design and the students were so busy with their own work. There wasn't a ton of like social culture and there wasn't a lot of extracurricular stuff. People just 
generally just did their own work. There was not a lot of partying. And one of the few things that did happen, there was a school student newspaper and I volunteered, the editor was losing steam. I volunteered to guest edit an issue and I wanted to just turn it into a GI Joe issue, which would have nothing to do with our, our college. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was sort of a joke, but it was also earnest. And, you know, like you're buying a magazine and like mm -hmm. one issue is just completely given over to Seinfeld or one mm -hmm. issue is just completely given over to you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, so I sort of wrote the entire issue and, you know, I redid our logo. So it looks like the G.I. Joe stencil. Uh, and I sat with the graphic designer. Anyway, that came out and these two things were sort of stewing in my head. So I started doing interviews and I didn't quite know it was a book that I was working on, but... You know, in 2001, there was email, but there wasn't as much of it, and there was not social media. So mm. uh, someone had put Larry Hama's email address on the internet, um, not by accident, but in an innocent way, and people were not abusing it and bothering him. So when I sent him an email, uh, an interview request, he responded favorably. Um, and I didn't want to do it by phone or fax, took a train in New York. And I have a friend in New York anyway, so I had a couch to crash on. And then separately, I had by accident met Larry Houston in Los Angeles a few years earlier, who uh, worked on the TV show. He's storyboarded and uh, co-wrote an episode, okay. co-wrote Hearts and Cannons. And so I called him and I said, I don't know if you remember this. We had lunch four years ago. Can I interview you about the TV show? So each interview, someone at the end of it would say, oh, have you spoken to so-and-so? <laughs> or I would say, who should I talk to next? Or I'd say, hey, do you have a phone number for so-and-so? Mm -hmm. Then it was a lot of cold calling and some email. 276 interviews later, there's very little cold calling. You know, I can find people on Facebook mm -hmm, or LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to think I'm basically done with the interviews, but I've also written... I've heard you say this before as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, correct. Um, so, so you said uh, you said two hundred and seventy six. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Your 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 website says two hundred and fifteen. <laughs> when I and I've, I'm sure I've previously heard you talking about one hundred and fifty, and think I'm done. <laughs> so you know, so uh, I I was talking to my uh, my friend who is my editor, and uh, I said. I need to go back and write about the like video games and the computer games. I don't know if that should be its own chapter or if that should be a paragraph in each chapter so we can follow the chronology. And he found someone who worked on the like second G.I. Joe video game, uh, the, uh, computer game. And so I contacted the guy. This was, this was July. This was this year. Oh, wow. um, and immediately crunched that transcript into two paragraphs and put it into chapter five. And so there are a few more interviews that I'd like, you know, there's one Hasro toy designer who I didn't think was interested and uh, couldn't quite find. And someone said, oh, no, no, I found him. I, I think he might talk to you. You know, years ago, I was doing like two or three interviews a month. And this year I have done one. So part of that's because of the pandemic things have slowed down but people are, people are at home without things to do so <laughs> that's that's true uh, I, guess, I guess i did two or three this year uh, yeah. that is true um but uh so i've, I've written the book's going to be tw 20 chapters uh -huh. the, f the first chapter is a quick review of hasbro's founding the 60s and 70s and then chapter two is hasbro convincing itself to bring gi joe back for 1982 and then doing it chapter three is like 
it hits in 1983. And then uh, chapters 18 and 19 are G.I. Joe Extreme, Sergeant Savage, and the movies that didn't get made, a chapter I'm really oh. happy with. And then chapter 20 is uh, so not quite now, getting to now, um, but I want to get to 2007 because I feel like the 25th anniversary line completes the circle of Real American Hero. And, you know, I would happily have a paragraph or something about the movies or, uh, you know, the new the newest video game. OK, but that means that means you're missing the uh, the whole IDW era then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, again, that that could be a sentence or a paragraph. Mm-hmm. But in term, I mean, whatever it is, it needs to have an end point. <laughs> yeah. The end yeah. point could be 1994 and there could just be one mm-hmm. paragraph on the unproduced yeah. 1995 line or 95 could be the end and there could be a paragraph on Savage and Extreme. You know, I feel like once we get to the modern era, particularly with the two movies, I don't know that that's another book, but that does feel like something more substantial, like an article or a series of articles that needs its own breathing space. And, you know, if, if a publisher said to me, like, no, 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 30 more pages, get to the Snake Eyes movie, uh, I would happily make that accommodation. <laughs> so so where are, where are you with it? How far, how far is it away from actually being a book that the general public can see? <laughs> this is a good question. So I've written... 19 of the chapters, nine of them need a significant edit, like a revision, because I wrote them more than five or seven years ago. And sort of the the second half of the book got a little more developed as I figured out now what I was saying. So I need to go back and bring the first half of the book up the level of the second half. Each time I finish a chapter, I send it to my designer, uh, Liz Oni, who's in Rhode Island, and, and I'm in Massachusetts, so she's an hour south of me. And she will take my images and my words and she'll make them pretty. So she's designed uh, 15 chapters and I want her to revise several of them as well as I have found new information and new images. It's easier to say the work that is left to do than the timeline that is left. Teaching and my store have slowed things down. Um, I'm actually going to start teaching less next semester because for years, like friends have said, you should take a sabbatical, like spend a year just writing. And it's hard to do that, but I'm not quite doing it, but I'm taking that advice halfway. So January is a big push mm-hmm. uh, for the book. And, you know, 2021 feels a lot more hopeful than 2020 in terms of world health. So I can't say months or years to answer your question. Uh, and there's a, there's a part B, which is writing and finishing the book are different than getting the book published mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. publishing the book. And that could involve other companies and rights holders. So... I just want to say thank you, everyone, for your patience. <laughs> um, it, it it has not stalled. I am not stopping or giving up. I am working on this. I do work on this. Uh, I very much appreciate the you know the occasional comment or email from people who've been following this or or discover uh, my blog. But this is this is the hardest thing I've ever done, mm. and it's it's only doable because. I have given myself or taken a lot of time to do it. Like, I don't know how to build a car, but if you gave me 10 years, I could build a car and drive cross country. So You could have if, built two cars by now. <laughs> if, if, I take, if I take 19 years, I can, I can write a book, but also, you know, I can start a business and start another business mm-hmm. and have another job. So um, also I should say, while the store and teaching have slowed down progress on the book, they've also helped the book Mm -hmm. because they've made me a better writer, a better business person, and they give me some legitimacy 
Because if I'm just at home writing a book and I reach out to someone and I say, I'm writing a book, they'll say, who are you? But if I say, <laughs> uh, hi, I'm a professor of animation history at so-and-so and I own this store, you know, they might say, oh, wait, I was in Boston. I've heard of that store. Yeah, it gives a bit of credibility. Hey? Um, I think it's, I can hear something coming, uh, coming down the road and it's uh, something a little bit strange and different. It's it's a G.I. Joe pop quiz, pop quiz, it's a G.I. Joe pop quiz, pop quiz, it's a G.I. Joe pop quiz, pop quiz, question one. So it is the annual Cobra Moustache Festival in Springfield Stadium. Norgahyde, Dr. Mindbender, Rock Viper are in the finale for Cobra Commander to judge the finest moustache. But who does he choose to win? He chooses Naugahyde because when he put on his, when Cobra Commander put on his disguise uh, in issue, was it 55? It was, it was sort of a big, grand, like hanging off your face mustache. Naugahyde does that and goes a step further. Yeah, I'd he'd certainly get my vote. That's probably the most uh, impressive moustache on, on the You know what? Cobra Commander, Cobra Commander is going to break the rules. So he's going to pick someone who's not in the finals. Uh, did, mm-hmm. did you say Zanzibar was was in the running? Uh, he wasn't on in the fun final, but he could, you know he's he's not one to listen to the rules, is he? Yeah, I, th- I think Cobra Commander would stand up and knock over a brazier of flame and point and say, "Bring in Zanzibar, he wins." <laughs> you do have to give props to the uh, Rock Viper as well, though, for for sporting that that tash. I've, wonder- I've I've always been confused, tickled, and confused. Like, is this the one time that Hasbro decided that? it's actually just a single guy and not dozens and dozens of guys or is this is this the dress code you know it's like uh is it the is it the yankees i don't follow baseball uh like the yankees are all they're all clean shaven right and then it's like other teams can have scruffy beards but if you're a yankee you have to shave right so it's like are all the other viper cores like that but it's the rock vipers who have yeah. mustaches or is there just one rock viper could be who knows who knows i'd like to think that it's part of the dress code that they insist that uh, rock viper sports uh, a fine mustache to join the ranks <laughs> so after that little deviation we'll uh, track right back to the main subject that we were discussing and that's the book and specifically the designer so when you were commissioning that was that like a private commission or was it part of an umbrella deal of some sort for with a publisher uh there there is no deal there's no contract with with uh, a publisher or any rights holders i i pitched the book to a publisher many years ago and i didn't want to send them a microsoft word document i wanted to send them pdfs of finished chapters or printouts of finished chapters so i hired liz uh, at the design firm where she was. And after we did those three chapters, I thought I should keep doing this. So she's on my side, uh, just as a side deal. And, <laughs> and I, I apologize. Uh, I still, I still do this because I see, I see people's names as words, uh, when I type their email addresses, uh, I referred to Liz with her, uh, maiden name and Liz is for years. Uh, so sorry, Liz, Liz Souza, Liz Souza is my, is my designer but the, yeah there's been some quite nice uh hardcover uh efforts in terms of the gi joe books coming at it from from different angles so there was um the mark bellamo i think it is is, is it something called something like the ultimate guide to gi joe which is is essentially it's it's a lot of toy photography and, and sort of uh deep down, down dives on on the uh early era gi joe figures i'm sure you 
very familiar with the with the book nicely put put together at least in my opinion and i know the guys at 3d joe's they've they've been doing their uh soft cover volumes focusing in on the um art uh, associated with the gi joe properties a lot of the the file card art box art that kind and and various um merchandising art uh produce very nice uh art books and i know that they're looking to uh convert uh sort of upsell <laughs> into uh into a um a hardcover book eventually as as well and and uh i know crowdfunding has been quite a success for a number of people that uh i don't know if you've heard of them but the etherington brothers have done a an enormously successful book called um how to think when you draw which is essentially um sort of a bit of a, a drawing guide and these are these are comic book guys um who have done yeah various uh strips but but now almost entirely focused in in on these these projects that they've they've done because they've been uh so you know so successful um i can't remember off the top of my head how much they raised in their last uh last kickstarter but it was in the uh hundreds of thousands of, of pounds we're talking about so um yeah there's a there's a lot there's people having uh some success in in getting their work out there and, and not necessarily uh needing to be constrained by the typical publisher route of uh, of finding finding their way into the market yeah um uh, to acknowledge uh carson metaxas who 3d joe's is very much him as a one-man operation and i know he's got Mm. the occasional contributor but all that photoshop work and website design is is him by himself i do think about kickstarter every day and (laughs) i i do pay attention to kickstarter projects that are general toy and pop culture and arts related as well as the gi joe specific ones kickstarter because it's not just a project it's a cause and it can be emotional and it can have momentum you know like it's one thing to you know set up a table at a convention and say please buy my book but it's another thing to have a little outpost on the internet where for four weeks you're saying hey everyone tell everyone else and you know people can see that Mm -hmm. gauge uh fill up with more and more uh, pledges so those those projects so 3d joe's art books those are photos of the toy packaging uh, with very nicely photoshopped corrected you know the package art yeah, paintings enhancement um so those are you know photos and scans of toy packaging belomo's book great photos of the toys and there are others out there my book it's 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 several things at once it's toys and comics and animation and marketing and also film and it covers 82 to 95 mostly and you know some of these other projects are just the toys and you know there's a wonderful website which is a guide to every episode of just the cartoon part of my explanation if people wonder why this is taking so darn long is that uh i've cast a wider net so there are more people to talk to and more comparisons to make and the actual act of writing, if I was just telling the story of one of these things, I could go chronologically. It's like, well, this year of the show, and then they hired new writers, and then there were more episodes. But every couple of paragraphs or every couple of pages in my chronology, I have to stop and jump back. It's like, all right, we've moved ahead a year in the toys. Before I get too far with the toys, I need to go back and explain what was happening at the same time with the comic book. 
and then here and there they converge. Cobra Commander is getting replaced in the animated movie, so this is going to also have to happen in the comic. And sometimes that can just be a sentence. Uh, other times it's me staring at my monitor for 20 minutes, scared of highlighting a whole paragraph and moving it eight pages down or to another chapter. And of course, you know, through the magic of saving Microsoft Word documents, that should be easy. Sometimes writing is easy and it flows. Sometimes it's uh, scary and it's hard. It's, it's like mm. drawing. It's like, as, there have be, as I have gathered more people and facts and anecdotes and pieces of art, a couple of my friends have joked that what I really need is a, a grad student as mm-hmm. an intern just to manage objects in my room. It's like, I need this piece of artwork. Go over there and find it in that flat file. Or, you know, when I say to people, someone's like, what did you do today? And I'll say, oh, I, I was writing my book. And that might mean sitting and typing new words. It might mean rereading a chapter from last week or last year and reminding myself where I was. Or, oh, that chapter was 95% done, but I know I needed to fact check one thing and rewrite one paragraph. And for some reason I hit a wall and I come back to it and, oh, well, that's not scary anymore. I, I, I figured that out or I found that fact or now I'm in the mood to go Google for an hour and find that fact. Sometimes I am actually at the computer and writing and other times I'm just moving files around on my computer or you know finding artwork in these flat files and sometimes if i say i'm writing on my book i'm really writing on my blog uh, which which also takes up that time and each of these blog posts you know i keep thinking to myself okay i'm just gonna post this one like ron rudat or mark pennington or kurt groen drawing on my blog, I'm just gonna write two sentences. Here's an action figure that someone pitched in 1988, it didn't get made. But then it's five hours later, (laughs) I need to give a biographical sentence on that toy designer, comment on how this figure looks back to a different figure, ahead to another figure, maybe we saw this helmet show up somewhere else, some personal anecdote about how I think grappling hooks are cool. And then some fact checking. It's like, wait, was it was it Pennington who started on the last day of '85? Was it the last day of '86? Open up three interview transcripts. You know, word search for the word December. So, uh, what you know, what this needs is uh, is time and and occasional encouragement. My wife is is a big silent partner in this, mm-hmm. in putting her hand on my shoulder and saying, "This is good," or. Why don't you go right? Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like it's it's the book that I want to see. You know, I'm I'm <laughs> your target audience here that sort of grew up reading GI Joe action, you know, slash Action Force. You know, reading the, read the reading the comics, particularly collecting the toys, uh, watching the the cartoons to a slightly lesser extent because we didn't really get them so so much over here in the UK. And yeah, I'm just intrigued and interested by all aspects of it, particularly in some of those deep dives of understanding some of the background, particularly on the on the comic book side and understanding the dynamics of what was going on over in in Hasbro and in the in the cartoons was linking back into to what was happening in the in the comic and all of these kind of things. It's just uh, really fascinating to me. So so I'm anxious to <laughs> eventually see this thing. Thank you for saying so, and thank you for your patience. Um, but actually, there's uh, something something just coming down down uh, and going to completely disrupt us and take us off course once again because it's a G.I. Joe pub quiz, pub quiz, it's a G.I. Joe pub quiz, pub quiz, it's a G.I. Joe pub quiz, pub quiz. Question two. Four Joes are captured and imprisoned by Cobra. 
They're in, kept in cells together with their pets. It's Spearhead and Max, St. Denkeyes and Timber, Shipwreck and Polly, and Mutt and Junkyard. The unfortunate Joe captives die of thirst and starvation. But which is the first G.I. Joe pet to begin eating its owner? Um, so I, I think the go-to answer would be timber because, you know, wolves are, uh, not, you know, yeah. wolves are wolves, yeah, but wild. timber, timber isn't quite feral. Timber's, timber is domesticated and junkyard is too loyal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't think parrots are, uh, meat eaters and we know so little about Max from the, from comics and animation. So mm-hmm. Max, definitely. Yeah. It's going to be the cat, isn't it? They're uh, they're in it for themselves. Um, I going back to the uh, a, a topic you were you were sort of on before question two. With my book, what I have realized I'm really interested in are trends. You know, a couple times someone has commented on my blog. I you know post a drawing or a photocopy of a like an action figure that didn't get made, and someone says, "Oh, that's so great! This would have been a variation." Or you know, from a collector, I have a photo. I have a, a photo of the memo from sculpting to the sculptor which said you have to redo Zorana's torso because um like her breasts like one slightly larger than the other and as as an artifact that's amazing that kind of level of detail is included but you know we think about product design and of course it would it might be a foot might be an eyebrow might be the ears you know this this ear is too big this ear is too high and someone said to me Oh, I can't wait to see all of that stuff, all of the the decisions and the memos and all the sort of variations for the toys. And there is a little bit of that. But since my book isn't like the definitive toy guide, there's more big picture stuff. And and I see that as trends. And I mean, certainly like, you know, I'll take out a sentence here or two or an image here or there to show that something changed or something was pitched and not accepted because that is part of the process. And the idea is on every page, you're going to see something you've never seen or learn something you've never learned. It might be a mm. fact. It might be an opinion, uh, you know, an anecdote or a joke. And, 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 you know, there's so much material, even with other people on the internet and in their own publishing, revealing some of these facts and ideas, there's still a wealth of stuff to reveal. So I, I don't want to disappoint that person that's looking for all of these amazing little changes and variations like oh well cobra commander was going to have like a 82 cobra commander was going to have a stripe on the top of his helmet and that got costed out and that is interesting but okay and is that that's true as well is it (laughs) i think i have a memo that shows that yeah yeah also i think i haven't posted that on my blog because there's this whole category of stuff on my hard drive where i don't know if i want to put it in my blog because i might put it in my book Mm. but that is interesting, particularly that first year where they're figuring out budget. And it is interesting, you know, five or ten years later when a figure we know is shows up as underpainted and we'd like to know the story, why, or what it could have looked like. But more interesting than that are the trends, which is, okay, in toy making, how does G.I. Joe change from 82 to 86 to 90 to 94 as the market changes. G.I. Joe is constantly reacting to the competitor product. G.I. Joe is constantly innovating because of R&D, right? That's guys who are sitting and drawing characters. That's sculptors who are coming up with better processes. That's marketing that's coming up with 
new hooks and gimmicks and story ideas. Uh, that's that's toy packaging, right? Like the, the logo goes from 2D to 3D. The you know the paintings become those sort of digital paint uh, mm -hmm, explosions. Mm -hmm go from organic to digital, quote digital, they were still drawn. And then later to just like red and blue lasers. And a question that I'm interested in answering is why? Not not as often what? Like what what's the difference between Cover Commander with a like little stripe on his helmet or not? But why? It's like, okay, well that one, that's money. And uh, you know, with the comic book, like 1986, 1987, 1988, the comic book explodes with spin-offs. Comic book goes bi-weekly, right? The the yearbooks happen mm -hmm. a little bit more often. Uh, not just you know special missions, but uh, Order of Battle and trans uh, Transformers, mm -hmm. and then Blackthorn does the three D book and mm -hmm. how to draw. Why, right? And I mean you know we could all guess money. There's money to be made in GI Joe, right? Why mm -hmm. does the show change? And a lot of the answers are either market forces or creative decisions. Mm -hmm. or sort of the combination of the two business decisions and some of this is personality right like ron friedman wrote the first 15 episodes of gi joe they are different than the rest of season one because season one was story edited by steve gerber and then season two is story edited by buzz dixon and gerber and dixon write more similarly to each other than either of them do to ron friedman right mm -hmm. the first 15 episodes there's, I know there's crazy sci-fi and silly stuff in later episodes, like, you know, the, the Space Needle restaurant that launches into space and wetsuits an astronaut with Ziploc bags, right? And again, it's silly, but it's it's actually grounded, even though it is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And sort of the ease with which, like, Joes are astronauts in the first 15 episodes, or, you know, Cobra, like, stops, a hijacks a space shuttle launch. There is a difference in in tone, and that the why of it is because the writers were different, and the writers had slightly different goals, right? And so it's really exciting in interviewing Steve Gerber. Um, I I have what I think is the second to last interview that he granted, and okay. he didn't he didn't say anything revelatory to me, but it was really cool just to connect with him. And he'd already given an amazing interview uh, in a magazine in 1985 that I was quoting in my book anyway. Uh -huh. But you know, for him and Buzz Dixon to say something like, oh, Ron Friedman had this focus. We had this other focus. Mm. And even if it's just a sentence, I feel like it puts a light bulb over my head in a way that a lot of the what, you know, was, I saw a real German shepherd the other day. And I don't know if this has happened to you. There should be a word for this phenomenon where toys have sort of lied to you for your whole uh -huh. life. I saw a real German Shepherd, just someone on my sidewalk walking their dog the other day. And I thought, my God, that's a big dog. Order isn't that big. And then I thought, oh, wait, well, Order's bigger in the movie than sort of as the toy. It's... Is the mm -hmm. toy small because they're saving money or like the molds couldn't be that big or like the bubble on the card couldn't go over that far? Is it about weight, like shipping weight? Like it's probably money. It's probably not like, <laughs> no, 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 we didn't yeah, we need yeah, to make it smaller yeah. and cuter because kids are scared of big dogs. But like, yeah, wait, yeah. that's not accurate. It's accurate <laughs> enough. And and, I, and then I thought... It's the size uh, you imagine the dog to be rather than actually the, the size that it should be. I guess there's a similar phenomenon with... Uh, like r2d2 and and yoda on occasion that you'll you'll look at the the scale of them and think 
wait is that is that right are they really that size in you know compared to to the to the regular uh you know humans size proportions and yeah i think there is various uh proportionality that that is a little bit off but it doesn't necessarily register as being uh odd yeah uh we maybe we have there's more leeway with yoda and r2d2 because they're fantastical characters and you know i guess at a theme park or in, in a parade you actually might stand next to r2d2 but more likely we're going to stand next to a german shepherd but you know next is someone next someone's going to tell me that wolves and parrots are actually bigger than hasbro sculpted them as <laughs> You know, one of the reasons why I like the 80s and 90s figures more than the modern era figures, it's not just O-rings versus no O-rings. I appreciate how much more detail, particularly with all the secondary stuff, like bandoliers on the newer figures. I don't even mean classified. I mean, you know, 2007 and up. The figures look great. Part of what I love about the O-ring era is that all the toys are, the proportions are just a little unrealistic, right? They're all a little short. They're all a little, I use this word very cautiously, cute, right? They're just a little, they're like 5% stubbier and they both look realistic like real people with these awesome costumes and accessories, but they also look like toys. And 2007 and up, it's so exciting to see like the detail, it's like, oh, that was a knife that was on his shin. I just always thought it was a, I guess, a melted knife that like wrapped against his shin, but it's a knife in a scabbard uh, or, or a sheath. But the, the newer figures, they're so realistic. I find the original line so charming. And that's a word that I think of a lot, both for the toy and the comic and the show. They're so charming. It's It's the personality of the characters. It's the realistic and gritty, but also silly story moments like, you know, astronauts with Ziploc bags. Uh, <laughs> it's the it's the color schemes, right? Like most mostly why I wanted to draw Cobrember is just to celebrate these wonderful color schemes. And this is something that, you know, I, I don't think gets talked about enough in, in G.I. Joe or Transformers for that matter. You know, there's something so handsome about 1982, 3, and 4 Cobra. All this dark blue, black and red, you know, like the '86 Viper, just perfect. Whether whether whatever the expression as as a plastic toy, as animation cells on TV, as ink printed on paper, um, and even where things get goofy, like you know the second uh, Heat Viper, who's that green right. uh, with, with the black, like that does not work for me. Wants a third color. Mm-hmm. Maybe a dark gray mixed in with the black, and the green doesn't feel like the original Heat Viper, but I still appreciate that. And and sometimes I just want to sort of live in those colors and that's staring at a TV or or doing a drawing of my own. Wow, that was quite quite a deviation. I'm I'm really <laughs> yeah, it's really enjoying this uh this conversation, but I want to delve into some some more of what you've been, you know, doing on your your book and what you've been finding out and you know, speaking with uh what was it 276 people now. What what have been what have been some of like the the unexpected highlights and sort of discoveries that that you've made made if you're able to if share some of those and i imagine you know talking to that number of people there's somewhere maybe you know you feel like you're kind of almost going through the process you just want to cover all the bases and then you just have this 
uh, amazing conversation where you just uh, uncover all of this unexpected stuff and conversely you know talking to uh, to somebody like perhaps I get the impression Russ Heath where he's saying sorry buddy I just I just don't remember any of it I can't I can't tell you yeah um uh, so to be fair it's uh, I should probably phrase it differently it's 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 275 interviews but some of them I've done two interviews with a person so the number of people I've interviewed is a little smaller than that but it's still really impressive um, <laughs> some highlights or cool facts I mean you know this is a well-told anecdote it, it shows up in most Larry Hama interviews but he was interview number one and when he said uh, I was the last guy they asked. They walked down editor's row and asked all the editors at Marvel who wanted to write this toy tie-in book. And I had wanted to write and I couldn't get hired as a writer. I was just an editor. And I said, I'll do it. Uh, and in other interviews, he has said, I would have taken Barbie if they'd offered me Barbie. Right. And we're, and, you know, we're all sort of like shocked and like giggling at that. But, you know, he, he, he's a writer and he wants to write. When I interviewed Kurt Groen, one of the toy designers, uh, one of the figure designers, right? Sort of the after Ron Rudat, he had just graduated from the Joe Kubert School in Delaware, and shoot, Delaware and New Jersey, it's in Dover. Both those states have anyway. It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I'm sorry to all the students and alums of the Joe Kubert School, um, and the Kubert School is about making comic book artists. And I don't know if they still have their animation training program, but. Ron Wagner had gone there, and uh, some other people that we know in, in comics and in G.I. Joe had gone there. And, you know, Kurt Groen wanted to break into comics, but he got this job designing toys. And uh, he didn't quite say this, but what I have decided or figured out from looking at his designs is that part of why G.I. Joe changes in the late 80s and early 90s is Ron Rudat, with his figures, he's looking at a lot of realistic military reference. And, you know, Ron Rudat is a, um, is a, a Civil War reenactor. Oh, wow. Right? And he, he paints landscapes, and he also paints uh, mini military miniatures uh, as a hobby. And, and Rudat had been at Hasbro already now for uh, five or ten years. Kurt Groen gets hired out of school and he wants to be a comic book artist and this might be putting too fine a point on it but i look at the later gi joe figures and i see superhero influences mm. gambits in, in x-men you think of gambits uh head headgear yeah sure yeah, yeah. The, the headband right. and the uh and then you look at um hawk version three or four with uh oh yeah, the jet yeah, yeah. and that may be a straight line and it may not be, and it's it's it, it may not be as simple as like Kurt Groen wanted to draw X Men. I don't know if they want to draw X Men, but Kurt Groen wanted to draw superhero comics, and he's drawing GI Joe instead. It may not be that simple, but and it may have been in the air, right? Like mm -hmm. everyone was watching the X Men cartoon, the comic was selling like crazy, and just you see that character, and and then again, sort of uh, higher up than Kurt Groen or broader than him in Hasbro in the second half of Real American Hero. It's like, okay, well, we've done several years of like military, military, military. Now, how do we change it to stay current so that we're not doing the same thing over and over again? Well, let me, let me throw it back to you. Is there a, is there a category? Because uh, sometimes I, 
you know, when when I when I'm on the spot, it's like I don't remember <laughs> who I interviewed. Yeah, I guess I guess the it's the uh, it's the comics is the most interesting thing thing to me, and I th- I, th- I think that there's uh, a whole bunch of interesting things happening in the, in the comic, and possibly maybe even on the Hasbro slash editorial side in terms of how some of the direction of things that went went on and, and came about uh, strikes me as interesting and i think one of them which i've pretty much figured out by my, myself but probably not the only one that's come to this realization is around some of the dreadnoughts appearances in the early issues i think in in the 30s i think this is where they appeared on the on the covers about three times and and i think this is linked to the, the advertising um, and also the, the same sequence where the uh, dreadnoughts are, are sort of tearing into um, sky striker type jets appears three times in in the in those same books I think initially where they're where they're attacking uh, the GI Joe sky striker another time they're they're tearing into another uh, jet that looks like a sky striker but isn't and another time it's it's a kind of flashback to remember when that that happened and I think that was all tied to do uh, with the the dreadnought figures being advertised via the the comic books that were coming out because they were doing the they were doing these adverts for the comic um, featuring you know particular figures that they wanted to highlight that were in the in the stores and I believe the dreadnoughts release date kept on getting pushed back and so the this uh, this advertisement for the comic kept on having to to get pushed back as as well and reusing that same animation footage of the the dreadnoughts attacking the sky strikers um and and that really influencing uh the 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 comics in terms of you've got to have the the dreadnoughts and you've got to feature them uh, uh um, attacking a sky striker and and this you know resulting in in them appearing on three separate covers within very short order and also this this segment appearing uh three times someone made this point that the scheduling of some of the ads looked like this ad should have been for this issue and vice versa and what did i know about it and uh when i get that kind of question sometimes i'm embarrassed because i in this case i don't know and uh and i hadn't thought about it i hadn't lined up those those seeming uh, inconsistencies. Um, so I don't have a specific answer to that question, but you know, your guess that the scheduling is such a job, you know, cause it's like, you know, when are the toys going to pass safety inspection? When are the toys going to, when are we going to get our sample from China? When are we going to get our next sample? When's the first couple of 10,000 going to show up on a boat? And coordinating that with, you know, an animation company in New York and also, you know, footage in coming from Japan and then also a publisher that works on its own monthly schedule, right? The animated commercials for the comic are supposed to be quarterly, but the figures are coming in waves that breaks down to three times a year. And, you know, like it's one thing for the, for the toys to show up in America on a boat in, I don't know, Seattle or New York or San Francisco. It's another thing for all these boxes to get trucked to all of these warehouses that then go to all these toy stores and stores. So I have an overall idea, which is, yes, scheduling. I don't know, you know, if we're hoping for some like little 
pinch of spice or controversy. You know, like, I, I don't think it was anything like, oh, uh, Ripper's gun was too sharp and they had to redo it. Like, it's not that. Sometimes that kind of thing happened. You know, people, you know, people talk about, um, was it 92, 93 roadblocks, um, like action weapon. And for a little while, do, do I have that right? What year is he? Oh, I don't, I don't know. This is the one with the, the spring-loaded launcher. Is that? Yeah. And, you know, for a couple of years, someone, people were guessing or asking, well, was it that it hurt someone? Because, you know, like spring-fired missiles in, in history have hurt kids. And mm -hmm. then there are recalls or, you know, something gets torqued down. Or, um, and uh, Vinny DeLeva, who was product manager marketing on G.I. Joe at the time, popped up on Facebook. And I think Carson Metaxas of 3D Joe's actually, I think he started this thread on Facebook like a year or two ago. And, you know, it was a picture of the toy. And I don't know if he was asking the question or just saying, hey, everyone, remember this? Or just showing a picture of the packaging to give an update. But someone someone says, um, was it because it hurt someone? And some, and Vinny DeLeva pops up and says, uh, no, it just broke. We, we had over sort of toked it and uh, torqued it and the uh, the rubber band snapped or the, the zip strip would snap. Um, and uh, forgive me for not remembering the specific, I, I took a screen cap of it, so I, I can refer to it in, in chapter 16 if I need to. <laughs> but one of the neat things that I have in terms of paperwork uh, is from 82, the schedule from the ad agency of when which advertisements would air Ooh. when and it's staggered, you know, it's like this ad is going to run in July for four weeks. And then that final week, this other ad is also going to start running. And then it runs for a couple weeks by itself, you know, leading up to Christmas, we're going to advertise the bigger uh, toy, you know, the, the Mobat or the headquarters. And that's the kind of thing which, if you've never thought about it, you might not realize it's a decision. And if you have thought about it, it just totally makes sense. Like, well, of course there's a schedule for which ads run when, but to see the actual, I mean, it's a photocopy, to see the actual piece of paper where, you know, the ad agency in coordination with Hasbro, because it's all advertising dollars. This is all money they're spending. Mm -hmm. You know, some of this is going to be in like larger markets, you know, like New York, Chicago, LA, uh, and, and some of it's just going to be sort of national and uniform. And it's, Seeing this kind of, you know, like I get a thrill from seeing a prototype or original artwork. I get a real thrill from seeing paperwork because <laughs> um, it's a different kind of decision making. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's more often like people wearing ties and worrying about money as opposed to, you know, uh, a piece of Bristol with ink on it where it's like, okay, this is one guy sitting at a drawing table in like Georgia and or new york and he's like ah should i show the tank from the front or from the rear and gosh this tank is hard to draw and and in terms of your your research for your book was there anyone that you really wanted to get to to talk to and and for whatever reason just haven't been able to to get hold of them get get spend some time with them yes there there is a hasro designer who maybe i didn't try at the right time or the right way you know email phone number uh linkedin facebook there's a hazard designer who I couldn't get through to, although a, a fellow fan found this person and uh, sent me some contact information. Um, so I think I'll try next month. 
um, and and I wrote around it. You know, this person had a smaller uh, contribution, and so I don't think it sticks out in the chapter where you know there isn't a paragraph about them. Um, and then there was there was a higher up person at Hasbro who I have some quotes from from an interview from a toy magazine from the '90s, and I feel like I sort of adequately include this mm -hmm. person. Um, and I, I cold called a phone number, uh, and someone in the household this is many years ago uh, said like, "Oh, this you know this person gets a lot of phone calls from fans." Like, no, thank you. And I wanted to say, "No, no, no, this is for my book. I'm not just a fan." Um, but uh, you know, this person, you know, it's it's five or ten years later. Maybe I can try again if this person's retired or uh, someone else like me who's done some research um, has gotten through. Um, find and... find a contact on social media. Ping them a message. New new avenues yeah, uh, to contact. Yeah, and, and there is available. someone. The chapter about GI Joe Extreme, which I'm also really happy with, because that story hasn't really been told, and <laughs> you could argue a lot of people don't need to hear that story. <laughs> Um, but again, it's it's so interesting because a trend, right? So much about extreme was let's do things differently, uh, but ultimately a lot of things were done similarly. And you know how how much did it work? So I, I did get through to a few people who had been at Kenner. Uh, one person high up said, "I was big picture. I don't really remember anything. I don't think I'm the right person for you." And I believe this person. I would still have loved to talk with them for 40 minutes because I would love to hear some big picture stuff about toy companies and Kenner in 1996. And then there was a designer who I sent an email to uh, and I didn't hear back. And then two years later, I tried again. And this person said, uh, so what, what is this? What's this project of yours? And I explained it and they said, they're very polite. They said, you know, this wasn't a highlight for me. The line wasn't very popular. And there are other things I did at Kenner that mean a lot more to me so you know no thank you uh, I'm, I'm not going to contribute and again i feel like i have uh, a little information about this person from someone else and uh, i can reasonably represent their contribution without uh, any first-hand uh, information but overall you know i was doing this long ago enough mm -hmm. um, and people are people are nice and giving of their time so i don't feel like i missed anyone super important because they died or because you know they're like super grumpy and mean mm -hmm. um you know if you're nice absolutely so so you've you've been able to get time with almost all of the major major artists that have done done the runs on the on the book yeah, I get uh, not Frank Springer, so I guess I okay. take that back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, some people, some people have passed away, but yeah, I, you know, I spoke that was with Trimpy years ago as well, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I, and I, I didn't realize I wanted to talk with him. It, I thought when I wrote that chapter, I sort of wasn't paying attention to those issues. Like, oh, he didn't do he didn't do that many issues, and it didn't seem like he was a regular artist, so I can I can sort of skip that. And then a couple years later, I thought, oh no, he drew like six or seven issues, mm -hmm. and. He, if I had contact, someone might say, you know, as you mentioned before, like, I don't remember. And then I can at least check that box off. And what's so interesting as well about the, the G.I. Joe artists is that um, for, for a fair few of them, it was some of their earliest work. So like you say, um, Ron Garney, I think Ron, Ron Wagner was almost new to the, to the book. Um, Rod, Rod Wiggum, I think it was some of his earliest professional work as, as well. And, and you just wouldn't think it to look at it they just it, it looks like they just arrived so fully formed as a you know proper professional comic book artist you would never uh, really imagine that this is 
you know this is them starting out because it just seems so you know fully formed in in my favorite in particular is uh rod rod wiggum it just his his stuff just seems like the to me the perfect embodiment of the way that it should be drawn almost you know it speaks to the editorial standards of marvel at, at the time and you know there was a barrier for entry you couldn't get hired on a marvel book even you know in 82 in 83 45 a top selling marvel book but you know in 93 not a top selling book you couldn't get hired unless you were you know, pretty darn good. And this book in particular, you had to be able to do everything. And Larry Hama was not the editor of the book. He was the writer, but he acted as a kind of editor on the book because he was an editor yeah, at Marvel for books, half yeah. those years. Mm -hmm. And also he was thinking like an editor in his approach. You know, like Todd McFarlane didn't draw any more issues because Larry Hama didn't think he was a good enough storyteller. And, and Larry's correct. Todd McFarlane, the issue, the, the two issues that he drew, um, there's lots of detail, and you know, you, you know, think about Spider-Man's webs and all those crazy poses and all the lines and people's hair and their eyelashes when he draws Spider-Man or you know or Spawn. In terms of detail, McFarlane was a great choice for that book. So you know, kudos to I think it was Bob Harris, the editor, who placed him there. But like, you look at the first page that he draws. Uh, and this is in uh, a book called The Art of Todd McFarlane. He spends two pages of that book, one is art, one's paragraphs, on getting hired and fired on and off of G.I. Joe. And then he lands on Hulk, so he's fine. But you look at that first page that he drew, and it's it's from you know what ended up being issue uh, 60 or 61, you know, a couple Joes at an airport. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. he draws a great, like the camera is like medium close. And he really needed to pull a camera back and show more of the cars that are dropping people off and then the, the building and the sidewalk that is the you know like departures area of the plane and then i guess it's falcon i forget who's like in the scene and like on a radio talking mm -hmm. to some other joe yeah and mcfarland drew it really well but he he didn't in terms of story he didn't draw the right thing uh at the same time marvel was hiring a lot of guys in 93 94 uh, and I'm not speaking about G.I. Joe artists who were not quite ready. Yeah. You know? I think that issue that issue you're talking about, the first McFarlane one, as well as an interesting panel there, which has either been had a paste over or, or was redone um, in the studio. And, and it looks uh, enormously like it was um, Mark Texiera, who was working on uh, Wolverine um, with with Larry. I don't know if it was at the time, but but at some point. Um and yeah, that that um, for that particular panel, the switching style and, and the the Mark Tixiera style is is quite distinctive. I will go look at that after we, um, <laughs> you know, when you look at original art, um, sometimes what you see is an art correction, not because someone's drawing was or storytelling was poor. Sometimes it's because the letterer forgot to include a couple word balloons, and now you need to add twice as many word balloons to one panel and suddenly the art has to like shrink so there's just a bunch of neutral space above it or it's like well if we add these word balloons that are missing we're going to cover up these other people so let's just get someone at the bullpen to redraw this panel and loosely match the style uh, and sometimes it's because 
you know, the, the writer or the editor, or maybe in this case, you know, the toy company uh, has an important idea for a change. You know, we're used to uh, seeing in the catalogs for G.I. Joe toys and the advertising, well, that's definitely a prototype or, oh, this guy didn't get that gun when the toy was released six months later. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's what was available or someone made a, a, a creative or business decision. It's like, no, you know, we're going to redo those arms. Those arms are too big. What we had, which is, it's, you know, almost unique. It's not something that, that you can see very often is, is that redo of the, the second Mark uh, McFarlane um, issue. Cause, cause we had the, the issue that appeared on the, you know, in the normal release at the time. But then after the event, we had had the reprint um, of the unpublished McFarlane version of that same issue in the, in the special. And you're actually able to hold them up side by side and see the different choices of the, of the artist. And, and sort of just pretty objectively, you can see that the published art that appeared was just, you know, head and shoulders above the, the rejected McFarlane art, just page by page. You can, you know, the, the choices that, that were made. That That's a, the issue that was published looks pretty great. And was it Marshall Rogers, I think, was the, the artist that picked it up in the in the end. But there's, there's yeah, some I, great panels there. And uh, I also find the Marshall Rogers issue the storytelling is clear, but it is less exciting. Mm -hmm. And some of that may be because he's a different artist. I suspect he had uh, less than the normal amount of time to draw that issue. You can make a similar comparison with issue 23 that Russ Heath drew Mm -hmm. because Mike Vosberg also drew that entire issue and it didn't get published. Yeah. Have you ever seen it? And Yeah, I have photocopies of all of it. Oh, wow. I'd love to see that. (laughs) And uh, somewhere on his blog, Vosberg posted some of it. I think that was a year ago. But, you know, uh, they, they, they draw differently from each other. And their whole sort of like shape vocabulary for how you're going to fit certain characters into a panel is different. Um, And, you know, both of them you know, this isn't this isn't like where one of them had a weakness and one of them had a strength. The the comparison here is Russ Heath's issue looks like the show because he was model designer on the show, and Vosberg's issue looks like the comic because he had just drawn the comic for a year. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can imagine how how it would have been drawn by by Vosberg in in as much that we had a number of issues drawn by him already, so he, you know got a very good gist of his style. But Russ Russ's Russ Heath's issue was. Uh, at least, yeah, something pretty special. It's one of my my favorites. I think that style that he brought brought to that particular issue was, yeah, something pretty incredible. An earlier question you asked, sort of like which which of the artists have I spoken to or not spoken to? And uh, when I when I talked to Ron Wagner on the phone some years ago, he his anecdote is that he was looking for work because he was just out of the Joe Kubert school and he like got a tip that this editor at Marvel would would look at new work. And so Ron Wagner calls Larry Hama and Hama says, if you don't have a bunch of pages of continuity for me to look at, I'm not interested. You know, I don't want to look at one page. I don't want to look at a cover. And Larry looked at some samples and said, you're not there yet, but come back soon. You know, paraphrasing. So Wagner did some work at DC and I think some of it was published and some of it wasn't. And then he came back, got hired on G.I. Joe, and then worked pretty much exclusively at Marvel 
for several years. You know, G.I. Joe and Punisher did three issues of Excalibur, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I don't know how I didn't realize this until this summer when I found them in my basement sort of by accident. <laughs> and it's, it's really fun to see them because it's all of the Ron Wagner shapes and the proportions, like his cheekbones and his eyes and how he draws hair and, you know, leather. But it's, you know, it's more super heroic, although the story is sort of pretty grounded for Excalibur. And and it's it's so great when he comes back many years later to do half of that IDW yearbook and then that one fill-in issue. Yeah. Uh, what when was it? 200 and, was it 218? Yeah, were they in the, they're in the tanks? That one? Yeah, it was the, t- the tank. Yeah. I, I can't remember the number, but it was the tank issue. Yeah, and yeah. I think that might have been one of those issues where someone, someone says... Uh, we can't traverse the tank turrets down. <laughs> yeah, Which, got... again, I do not. I do not mean. I don't mean that as a joke. I think that's awesome. I love that that happens. I've got. I've got two once. of the um, the inked pages from from that that issue actually. Um, I think uh, from yeah Brian um, Brian Shearer's inks on over Ron Wagner's blue lines, and so I've sort of had a chance to kind of look at it really up up close. And and yeah, when you're looking at a page like that, you sort of and doing it quite intently you sort of do definitely learn things and, and appreciate some of the the work that goes into it so um you know way over and above when you're just flicking through it on a on a page but that's yeah. great but ron regner is uh is also an artist that his his early stuff there in those that that you know work that he was doing on gi joe it's his style it's it was very much in the footsteps of um rod wiggum yeah, sort of not not you know not too far a deviation in in style, but looking at his modern stuff, you can see definitely the the that progression in in style and influences, and his his character is a lot more um, I guess angular, you might say. Um, there's a, there's a definite style that that is in, employed there that that has evolved over time. In his original run, I see some Joe Kubert. And he had been at the Joe Kubert school, so that makes sense. I don't know, you know, how many of the classes Kubert was teaching himself, and certainly there are other people there uh, besides Joe Kubert who teach. And in the later issue and a half, counting the yearbook, Wagner's stuff is like 15% simpler, which I mean as a compliment, and like 5% cartoonier. His eyes are a little bigger, his expressions... This isn't a full like Michael Golden comparison, but you know you look at Michael Golden's G.I. Joe covers yearbook two, his work on the Nam. Golden is cartooning his faces, like he'll draw a realistic gun and clothing, mm-hmm. but then he makes people's eyes mm-hmm. a little bigger than realistic, and then he gives them like an Archie cartoon mouth, yeah, and yeah. that is part of the appeal of Golden. And so um, I think Wagner, like a lot of artists, as he matures he realizes he can say as much with less. And, you know, sort of the biggest example of this in comics is Mike Mignola. Mignola stuff early at Marvel when he breaks in, Rocket Raccoon miniseries, mm-hmm. and he did some early uh, Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd never know that this guy's stuff is going to get folded, flattened, abstracted, covered in shadows, and everyone's going to look like a statue, you know, 20 years later, five years later. And... You know, Manuel's early stuff, it just looks like Marvel house style. It's got some little bit of, you know, Rick Leonardi and Mike, uh, Michael Golden and I, I guess Kirby. I, I don't I don't know if I see it, but I, it's got to be there. You know, by the time he's doing Cosmic Odyssey and then that sort of 
Hellboy issue of Legends of the Dark Knight and then Hellboy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's just drawing like octagons and hexagons and everything looks like origami. Uh, <laughs> That's good. In an, in an awesome way. Like it has become abstracted. And I didn't like Mignola stuff when I was first reading comics when I was you know 11 years old. Okay. I didn't get it. But I also didn't understand Kirby. I thought his mm, stuff was yeah. weird and ugly. I didn't see the power. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't see like the storytelling and his, his wonderful sense of scale and technology design. And so, yes, part of me wants Ron Wagner's stuff now to look like 1987. But, you know, that's unfair. That's like, you know, having your favorite band. It's like, why don't you sound like you used to? Well, that's not <laughs> what artists do. And if they did, it, it'd be sad. It's like, why don't you stagnate? Um, and, you know, like Wagner's stuff is satisfying in a different way. But it's it's better because he is like a Mignola. He's saying as much or more with less. And Rod Wiggum, same thing. Like his first couple of issues, there's lots of crisp detail. And you look at the stuff he mm-hmm. does right now for Gil Thorpe, this newspaper comic strip. And you look at the little bit of G.I. Joe that he did uh, for IDW. And he is drawing less detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very uh, and I, I'm crisp, trying to think clear lines and yeah. I wonder, I wonder what the comparison. It's it's not as you know his his original run with Destro Search and Destroy. I think Destro Search and Destroy. I think Randy Emberlin is inking him, and that's it's going to add a different polish. And not enough time had passed for his stuff to have changed that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some artists as they get older draw less because drawing is hard. Drawing a comic <laughs> is one of the hardest things. Six seven days a week, yeah. all day long. Motorcycles, horses, costumes, perspective, people, expressions, poses, fighting. Uh, be a, you have to be a costume designer. You know, if Ron Wagner wants to come back and do another issue, a special issue, a special uh, annual, an issue just in the middle of the regular run, uh, I'd love that. You mentioned Brian Shearer before. I really liked his issue with Duke yeah, last year, and I'm excited he's just done another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a really good fit for the book, and and I have liked his inking, although I don't have a great sense of you know what his inking. I haven't seen him make a lot of other things, and you know when he was inking uh, Shannon Gallant, uh, I don't think other people were besides Gallant himself. So I like Shearer's stuff. I don't even after all this time, I don't have the best handle on sort of what makes it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you got quite to the end of your anecdote there about Ron Ron Wagner and him starting out. Were you were you, were you going to talk to um, the fact that Russ Heath ended up inking him? Wagner was really excited about that because he was still new to comics, and Heath with Heath was his favorite or a favorite comics artist of his. And you know there are lots of stories in comics where someone just starting out, either because the editor is playing it smart or just sort of through an accident of scheduling, like a really good veteran inker gets put on a new kid penciler and utterly elevates the work. That issue is is a special kind of magic because Ron Wagner is, you know, one of these like quintessential G.I. Joe comics mm-hmm. artists. And uh, the inking on some of his issues later on, because he's doing breakdowns, mm-hmm. not full pencils, because he's running behind because it's a hard book to draw. And I, I think Fred Fredericks is the anchor. Yeah, uh, like over Cobra those Civil Cobra Civil War issues, they sort of ping ponging between. I think it's Ron Wagner and um, Marshall Rogers, and and yeah, obviously they're they're sort of running a little bit behind with things and trying to go at speed. Yeah, this issue inked by Heath 
it's it's like the best of both worlds because it's this like prototypical G.I. Joe comic book style that so many of us want, but it has this amazing polish on it from Russ Heath, whether or not it looks more like the show, it just like a lot of action comics look back to his work because he's one of the best action comics artists of the century, like war comics. And then also he had his fingers in the TV show. Yeah, so it's like, it's bringing like, I guess Wagner's sort of new energy and, and his his style but with with that um russ heath polish to it so you're getting the the best of both worlds really the the sort of that energy combined with that that finish and yeah it's a spectacular looking issue and then on top of that you have characters and vehicles that only showed up in animation briefly in the commercials and it's always exciting when you can sort of imagine later toys that didn't get to appear mm-hmm. in the show you know, like this fantasy of mine would be, it's like, okay, we've had, you know, X-Files seasons 10 and 11. We've gone back to Star Wars movies. You know, we got Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher back. And I know some writers and artists and voice actors have passed on. I have this fantasy of getting writers and story editors from 84, 85, 86 to do, you know, a five-part miniseries. Mm, yeah. just, uh, just using the Russ Heath model sheets and doing like the doing like the the season that we didn't have it's like i want to see a 1988 season you know after the movie i thought i thought i thought you're going to talk to the comic books that can we get back some of those stellar teams and, and you know have a maybe a one two three of uh, of uh, rod wiggum ron wagner um mark bright something like that just as a, a little a little sort of uh, sub mini uh, arc within the book that would be pretty incredible. that that is that is also a fantasy of <laughs> uh you know there's there's some things working against that. You know, like, you know, Herb Trimpey drew a bunch of covers. Wiggum drew a bunch of covers. Bright did this. Uh, I'm going to take credit for this, actually. Mark Bright drew an issue of Transformers at the beginning of IDW's run with those characters. I saw Chris Ryle, then editor, later editor-in-chief at IDW at, I guess it was BotCon. Might have been JoeCon. And they were going to do a bunch of one-shots, character one-shots, the spotlights. And... Uh, Mark Bright drew uh, two or three covers for Transformers in the beginning of the Marvel run, and he painted the famous Shockwave Transformers Are All Dead cover. And like this fact is not obscure, but I feel like a lot of people don't know it. Even though you can see his signature, uh, it's hard, but you can see it um, by Shockwave's feet. Uh, and I said to Chris Ryle, um, you know, Mark Bright never drew any interiors for the series. You should hire him to do something. And he said... That's a good idea. So Mark Bright drew the first Transformers spotlight. Um, in terms of IDW hiring artists from the past, comics don't pay very well. Yeah, and that's where it falls smaller down, publishers, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the page rate at the smaller publishers, it's you know, it's not it's not what it should be. Page rates haven't gone up a lot in twenty or thirty years. And I you know, I can't speak for any one artist in particular, but you know, editors are juggling a budget got to pay for the penciler and the writer and the letterer and all that stuff. And, you know, sometimes if you're going to spend a little extra money on an issue, you'd get it on a cover artist or Mm -hmm. a variant cover artist. It's possible, you know, some of these artists have been asked and it's not, there's no time in their schedule. Um, An editor may not want to go overboard with finding folks. You know, I mean, the the argument is that it's Larry. Larry's here. So it's not like we're living in the past because he's on the book, but um, I would love it if 
some of these guys, all these guys, you know, the, uh, the yearbook, um, with the Crimson Guardsmen on the cover mm-hmm. and those, uh, one or two fill-in issues by Ron Friends oh, yeah, and yeah. Sergio Corellio were really exciting because those are guys who might have drawn G.I. Joe mm-hmm. at Marvel at the time. But, you know, Friends was drawing like Thor and I think Corellio was at DC doing uh, Green Arrow. I forget. And they very much fit yeah. in, in this, mm-hmm. you know, Ron Wagner, Rod Wiggum, Herb Trimpey world. This, you know, Marvel DC house style of the 70s and 80s. Which, which I mean as a compliment. You know, I, the shorthand is like old school, but I feel like sometimes old school <laughs> can come across as as an insult. Sure. There's a change with Mark Bright because there's a little more superhero in his art. There's a change with Andrew Wildman because there's a little more animation in his art. Mm-hmm. And then there's a change halfway through Andrew Wildman's run because he starts drawing two books per month and his anchor changes. Uh-huh, okay. Um, you know, like Phil, Phil Gozier for the final year of G.I. Joe has different influences than the people who came before him. And the book looks different. And then on top of it, you know, like Scarlet's like sort of super heroic ninja <laughs> costume. Yeah, it's not my favorite era of the book, the uh, last 20 or so issues. <laughs> but uh... I, I really love issue 145, uh, Gozier's first issue. Like after after Ninja Force, that issue, you know, we're back in, is it Barovia? And Cobra Commander's a bad guy. That issue felt like a really good, a really good shift. Yeah. And interviewing, uh, sorry, I don't know if it's uh, Gozier or Gozier, but uh, interviewing Phil a couple years ago was, was really exciting because he, he enjoyed doing that book. And he, you know, like it gave him a leg up in comics, even if, you know, it was just a toy book and the book got canceled. Uh, and it's, it's great to talk to these artists. And, you know, I try to be a journalist for 30 or 90 minutes and I'll take <laughs> off my hat for a moment and say, also, as a fan, it's really cool to talk to you. I love your issues. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think as much as anything, those last few issues, it was kind of the the inconsistency in the, the, the team rather than necessarily a, a dislike for one particular artist although <laughs> subjectively there there are there were sort of uh styles of art there uh, that i preferred more than than others but yeah, i can appreciate uh his style for for what it is and and uh at the very least um you know the, the stories did come across and and you know the storytelling ability was there even if uh the slightly more exaggerated cartoony stuff was a very uh, was a fairly stark deviation from the, the slightly more uh, realistic uh, portrayals that come before. And in, then he went on to draw Steel, which is where okay. Chris Batista mm-hmm. had gone. So I was uh, I was looking through the back issues at my store, and I found John Stadema's issue and a half of like Adventures of Superman. Uh, and I, I forget if he did this before or after a GI Joe, but it's right around then. And at the time, I, I didn't like his issues, but actually, I got a commission from him two years ago. I had him draw a big G.I. Joe scene for me. Oh, interesting. And it's awesome. And he, uh, last year, was posting sketches every couple of days on Facebook, and he some of it's cartooning, and some of it's more uh, grounded. And, you know, I don't know if he's still, like, a good fit for, like, the monthly grind of comics, but what, whoever the inker himself uh, someone like brian shearer uh it'd be so cool for him to do even even a backup story but uh one of the one of the things i'd love 
I want I want IDW to go bi-weekly again on GI Joe. It was so cool when um, when Silent Option was running because there were two GI Joe stories in this canon happening every month, and then you know during the two twenties when it was going bi-weekly, and I feel like uh, you know you could either just have double the issues or you could have a mini series or some one shots on the side, and maybe that's the place for some return. Uh, artists mm, mm. Um, and they're also you know if they're not under contract at publishers other publishers um, there are also tons of artists who are newer to comics who I would love to see not the um, Paul Allure continuity or the mm-hmm. you know sort of the, the Transformers shared universe IDW continuity um, there are tons of other people who have maybe just done covers I'd love them to do a full issue like uh, yeah like Ryan Kelly for example just sort of has uh, talked about you know, working on Geo Joe being, you know, uh, a bit of a career ambition <laughs> just because of his love for, for the, the franchise and, and that while he's gotten to work on the Paul Allor uh, continuity, it's not quite the same as the the old Hammerverse and being on the main book. Tom Waltz, are you listening? <laughs> uh, there there are some artists who who should draw a twenty page Larry Hama G.I. Joe story. Uh, it could be an annual or a backup. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather it not be a backup, but I'll take anything. You'll take anything at this point. It could just be the just the next issue, you know. Like no offense to the the two to you know Atkins and uh, Diaz, but it you know it could just slot them into just the middle of the uh, middle of a story. But uh, I feel like I've taken up an awful lot of your time. <laughs> I feel like I've taken up an awful lot of your listeners' time. It's been a good meandering talk. Uh, uh, sort of covering a lot of uh, areas, a lot of bits of property, and and a lot uh, and some good insight into to how you're progressing with your your book, particularly. But um, you know, as much as you might be modest and do down do down some of your expertise, um, it's clear from this chat that you are the guy who knows your GI Joe stuff. And uh, yeah, definitely, it's uh, every day is a school day when I am listening to you learning new stuff. <laughs> So thank, thank you very you. much you, for spending some time with us. And uh, yeah, I found it uh, fascinating and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to talk again at some point in I, the future. Uh, I, uh, sure. I'm always ready to talk G.I. Joe. And uh, to, to your listeners, if you, are in, if you are in Massachusetts, if you're near Boston, we're a mile out of Boston, please, please visit Hub Comics, my brick and mortar shop. Uh, we are closed for the time being for renovations and also to just avoid some of the COVID complications of having a business. But um, there are updates uh, every week on our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash hubcomics, our website, hubcomics.com. You can find me on Instagram at a real American book. My website is arealamericanbook.com. It's been running for years, so if you have just recently found it, the uh, the index page, uh, it's not the easiest to navigate, but between comics and toys and animation uh, and anecdotes, there's uh, a wealth of, of posts from the last couple of years. And uh, I hope to, uh, to see you all on the internet soon. Thank you again so much mark and to your talking joe's listeners for having thank you our pleasure because when all said and done you can catch us down the road because we've been talking joe and we're all out of joe's that's great <laughs>